Assalamu alaikum. I'm Sarah Wasim, and I'm part of the Review of Religions team. Welcome to another podcast brought to you by the Review of Religions. The Review of Religions is an international magazine that is published by the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, a global organization dedicated to promoting interfaith understanding. The Review of Religions has been in print since 1902 and is one of the longest running comparative religious magazines. These days, we are experiencing a significant moment of awareness of the racial fault lines in the United States. Following the brutal murder of George Floyd, an African-American man killed by police. His murder has once again raised questions about injustice and inequity in the United States. To help us understand the impact of this, we are fortunate uh, to be joined here today by Dr. Rashida Ahmed, who holds a master's in special education and a doctorate in curriculum and instruction. She is a professor and her life's work over 20 years reflects her commitment to the cause of social justice, specifically in the critical analysis of how the institution of schooling practices in the United States mirrors and reproduces inequalities in the larger society. Her publications have focused on how power and privilege shape educational experiences for marginalized students. Her most recent 2019 publication is a book, A Paradise to Regain, Post-Obama Insights from Women Educators of the Black Diaspora, and it seeks to reimagine traditional views of black male identity in school settings that hinder or act as barriers to achievement. Assalamu alaikum and welcome, Dr. Ahmed. Walaikum salam, rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Oh, alhamdulillah, Jazakallah for inviting me. I feel very honored and humbled that you would ask me to speak with you today. Jazakallah. We are also joined by Farhat Mahmood, who is also from the Review of Religions team. Um, Dr. Ahmed, can I start off by asking you what you think are the most pressing issues today that need to be addressed about racism and, and what you think society is missing? Um, absolutely, yes, I would like to address that question. And before I start, I, I just want to revisit um, what the horrific murder of George Floyd, that eight minutes and 46, se 46 seconds that we watched, um, it was just horrific. And as he cried out for his dead mother, our hearts were really broken. And just to watch this officer with his knee on his neck and you know, George Floyd is crying out, you know, officer, please, I can't breathe. And no mercy was shown to him. And I can't emphasize enough how painful that is for all of us, but in particularly African-Americans. Um, and so um, it, it just reopens a wound of just the racial oppression and systematic oppression that we experience in the United States. Um, and it's been a very painful um, period in, in, in our history today. So one of the things that I want to also mention is that there have been 70 cases of Black women who have been killed at the hands of the police in the last three years. Um, and this is a longstanding problem with media coverage. Um, there seems to, there's this lack of attention to crimes committed against Black women. Um, and so it's, very difficult to educate the public about the violence against Black women. But as we remember George Floyd, we also need to remember and pray for those women 
those 70 women who have been killed in the last three years at the hands of police. Can I interject to that point? Because you've made a very important point. We tend to hear about young black men, don't we? African-American men. And that's really interesting. I think, I wonder if there's been enough attention on, on the deaths of, of African-American women. Absolutely not. And um, there is some scholarly work um, out about this. Um, there's Ms. Michelle S. Jacobs, who's a professor of law at the University of Florida. Um, and she addresses this disconnect in a paper, The Violent State, Black Women's Invisible Struggle Against Police Violence. Um, and so we have to keep in mind that the media tends to um, present stories in a way that um, they get the most viewers, that people will click on. And uh, Black women generally are devalued in society. And so we actually see um, that their cases, these cases of brutality have not really been uh, publicized. And, um, you know, inshallah, the, the, the struggles of these women will come to light. And I just wanted to make sure that I highlighted that before we proceed. So your question was, what do you think are the most pressing issues that need to be addressed about racism? Um, and then I will include like, what do I think society is missing? And so I wanna start with um, a sort of analogy of you're building a house and you're building a house and it's so important that that foundation is erected properly. So you could have this beautiful house, um, you know, lovely furniture and all the, um, the, act, the things in the house that uh, would make it so, you know, beautiful and wonderful for a family to live in. But if the foundation is not constructed um, in the proper way, that house could crumble. And so when we're talking about or discussing issues of racism in the United States, and I'm specifically addressing the U.S. context, it's important that we look at the, the foundation. So the foundation of racism in America is actually built on this myth of race. It's a sort of mythological tale um, created by society, which really has no biological basis. And so I would say that in the foundation of our understanding this problematic issue of racism, we first need to look at this idea of race that is really myth, it's really a myth. So what we see is that um, the, this creation of racial categories are simply there to divide the human, the, the human family, and it sort of serves as a as the foundation of systemic racism, which I had mentioned before. So it's it was created to support and justify the enslavement of Africans and colonial exploitation and domination of non-Europeans. And so all of this really occurs just for greed and economic control of resources. So the myth of race really is like a tool of oppression. It's this tool that keeps the foundation of this systemic oppression in place. It's, it's the tool that tightens any cracks. And so, um, you know, you wanna think of it as a myth of, of race as like a sort of belonging to this exclusive country club. And so in which, you know, the white members have this exclusive rights, brown people get to become members occasionally and blacks are never allowed. Um, and, 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 and if whites try to um, really argue for social justice um, to really transform the systems, they're sort of reminded that, look, you enjoy these privileges as being white, 
And so this is why you see often uh, some working class whites in America who are really, really struggling and pretty much in the same boat with um, the, the working class African-Americans and you know, the underclass. And, and they're dealing with some of the same issues, but they don't come together. Why? Because they sort of have, um, they say, well, at least I'm white. And, and somehow that makes me superior. So it's, it's really a myth. So, so they've bought uh, into that. They've bought into the idea that there is some kind of inherent racial dominance. So absolutely. even though we're in the same situation, we're still better. Exactly, exactly. So there was a, a brilliant Harvard, Harvard professor. Um, his name is Noel Ignatiev. He's, he's no longer with us. Um, but he states that, you know, there's Irish, Irish culture, Italian culture, and if I may add, these aren't his words, there's British culture, there's French culture. But Ignatiev states that whiteness has nothing to do with culture and it has everything to do with social position. It's nothing but a reflection of privilege and it exists for no other reason than to defend it. So without the privileges attached to it, the white race would not exist and the white skin would have no more social significance than big feet. So that's a pretty uh, you know, powerful statement, but um, it, it's certainly you know, relevant. Um, and then there's the scientific evidence that really supports this. But before I even you know, just glance at the scientific evidence that support it, um, let's look at what Allah tells us in chapter four, verse, six, verse two. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. O ye people, fear your Lord who created you from a single soul and created therefrom from its mate, and from them twain spread many men and women, and fear Allah in whose name you appeal to one another, and fear him particularly respecting ties of relationship. Verily Allah watches over you. So it, it's so extraordinary that 14 years, 1400 years ago, plus this knowledge has been revealed that we're created from this single soul, and that humankind has been dispersed all over the world. So there really is no biological basis for race. There's only one human race. Um, and as humans, we share 99.9% .9 of our DNA, DNA. So who are we? We're those tribes and sub-tribes that Allah instructs us in the Holy Quran. Uh, we, people have their ancestry and you know, their ethnic groups and, and you know, the cultural groups and language. And so, um, when I focus on this notion that there is no, um, there aren't different separate races, this does not mean in any way that I'm saying there's no such thing as culture and that we don't have differences in our appearances. So obviously we do. Um, but the amount of melanin, which determines how dark your skin is, is really determined by those adaptations um, based on the environment, um, um, how people were disper dispersed in the environment and this sort of intermarriage of various groups based on trade, living patterns, and, and so forth. Um, it's, it's a wonderful um, video out. I don't know if you all are familiar with Rashida Talib, who is an Arab American, um, and she's asking one of the political figures in this conversation um, why Arab Americans have been excluded from a, a census. And so she asked the question, do I look white? Do I look white? Um, and, and it's such a powerful statement because I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, maybe you do. 
because I certainly <laughs> might see folks who are white who may look like her. Um, but what she's saying is she is an Arab American and her identity is not being recognized in um, the, the census. Um, and so I think it's called the, the Middle Eastern North African group of people or MENA. And, uh, she, and so what they wanna do is take that group and sort of um, the only choice that she has is to check white. She's not African, so she can't check that. And her choice would be to check white. So the whole notion of how we construct race is, is very politicized and, and it's really related to this history of slavery, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I also wanted to just refer the audience to a resource um, and, and an excellent resource is um, Jane Elliott, uh, who is an elder, this, this white teacher who created this, what we call the blue-eyed, brown-eyed experiment. So in 1968, um, you know, right after Dr. Martin Luther King were, you know, was assassinated, she was so, she wanted to find a way to teach her children how there really wasn't any um, basis for race. And so she conducted this experiment where she told the children one day that all the brown-eyed children were the smart children and they were on top. And so she gave the brown-eyed children all these privileges. And then she said the blue-eyed children weren't very smart and you know they didn't get to have the extra recess. And so you see the breakdown of these children. They start fighting against each other and bullying each other. And you really see what, is hap what happens in society when you have these um, mythological uh, social categories. People actually do bully each other based on this notion, false notion that they think they're better than each other. Well, to make a long story short, then she, flips the groups. And she said, well, remember when we said the brown group was on top? Well, today they're on the bottom. And so then they go through that whole process again. And finally, we find out that she, what she, she finds out is that the children um, who had been on the, the lower group, their scores, their um, achievement scores started to uh, fall down and they started to achieve less. And it actually affected their, their learning so it's just a very powerful um, experiment. And so I encourage the readers to, uh, the listeners, excuse me, to um, look up Jane Elliott. Um, in terms of the science, I would recommend to our listeners an excellent article. Um, and this was shared with me by our Lajna Torbiat secretary in Philadelphia, how science and genetics are reshaping the race debate of the 21st century. So in the article, it, the, the research supports what the Holy Quran teaches us uh, and it goes back about 18 years. So this is nothing new that I'm sharing, um, that there's no biological basis for race. And in this article, the authors cite a, a groundbreaking Stanford study titled The Genetic Structure of Human Populations. Um, and then that's followed by the 2003 Human Ge Genome Project, which really examines human ancestry with genetics. So um, basically, um, to, you know, those of you who want to really go into the science of it, and I really encourage people to do it, and I'm hoping that young people, you know, we will have these scholars really study um, this information. But um, if I may quote from the article before we move on to look at other areas of racism, is that the article says, to sum up, in the biological and social sciences, the consensus is clear. Race is a social construct, not a biological attribute. 
Today, scientists prefer to use the term ancestry to describe human diversity. Ancestry reflects that human variations do have a connection um, to the geographic origins of our ancestors. Um, and so with enough information about a person's DNA, scientists can make a reasonable guess about their ancestry. However, unlike the term race, it focuses on understanding how a person's history unfolded, not how they fit into one category or another. In a clinical, in a clinical setting, for instance, scientists would say that diseases such as sickle cell and cystic fibrosis are common in those of sub-Saharan Africa or Northern European descent, respectively, rather in those who are black, quote, or white, black, um, unquote, or white, quote, unquote. So um, it's just a lot to digest, I know, for the listeners, but I will have to say that this particular topic meets a lot of resistance. People do not want to give up their uh, position in the social hierarchy. And it's very real to be able to say, I'm white and I'm at the top, so therefore I'm better. And then if you're brown in the middle, somehow um, you're, you're still better than the, the, the black people who are descendants of the Africans who were enslaved in America. Uh, that was a really comprehensive uh, review of the complexity of the situation regarding race. So what do you think um, we are missing in society in, this, uh, in discussing this issue? Right. So in addition to debunking this mythical race construct, it's, it's really important that we recognize the true complex nature of racism. Uh, racism in the U.S. is not something that um, can be understood in a little short workshop. It can't be understood in uh, a sort of 10-minute presentation. It's really quite complex and very deep in terms of understanding how the structures of racism really impact you know, the United States and, and the descendants of the Africans who were enslaved. So you know, we have the storytelling, and, and that helps us to empathize with the degrees of the horror of, of racism. But I would say that there's this urgent need for a deep dive into the research of how systemic racism operates. So systemic racism, um, you have layers upon layers of oppression. Um, and and these, these systems are sort of supported by deception and lies. I give you the example of even the social construct of race. And so we really need informed individuals to do this work. Um, and let me tell you, it, it, it definitely is a challenge. So let me just give you some examples of systemic racism. Uh, you know, and this is not an, um, an inclusive list, but just to help our listeners understand, you know, how systemic racism works. We have something like, we have something called environmental racism. So at the national, state and local level, we find that the exposure of African-Americans and others of color, particularly Latinos, um, that we tend to live closer to polluters and we breathe this sort of polluted air. Um, and then we also know that, um, you know, in Flint, Michigan, this has been a, a recent problematic issue where we see that, uh, you know, the water contamination um, has ex is existing there. Um, and, and we don't know what the long range effect will be on the children as they, um, you know, they've been drinking this water and how that might affect them cognitively. So environmental racism, where you have many African-Americans um, 
in poor areas, living near polluters, um, and just at risk for many diseases to develop even cancer as a result of that. Another example of systemic racism would be the justice system, um, where um, we have the courts and the prison system that disproportionately affect African Americans. So right now, um, as a result of the, the sad death of murder of Mr. Floyd, there's a, a flurry of activity really looking at trying to address policies and come up with legislation and laws to um, you know, really address this police brutality. But my question also is, what about the African-American males who are inca incarcerated in state prison prisons at a rate that is, you know, 5.1 times the imprisonment of whites. You know, in, in five states, the disparity is more than 10 to one. Um, and in 12 states, more than half the prison population is black. And we're that's incredibly about... high. Sorry to interrupt you there, but yes. that's a very, very high figure. And as you're talking, I'm, uh, I, you know, you may go on to talk about this, but I'm also thinking about, uh, certainly in the UK, the... Um, high rates of young black men who uh, get detained in uh, under section. So section is when they're detained against their will in uh, mental health institutions. So there is, there are parallels going on there, aren't there? Um, oh, with yes. that disproportionate number. Absolutely, Sarah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's extraordinary to, to see the parallels in, an, in another country, but we have to ask ourselves, what's the impact on the families when you have this um, disproportionate number of black males incarcerated in the prison system, and then when they actually come out of the prison system, they're not able to vote, they have difficulty finding jobs, um, they may not have the skills and the education. And so what that means to the family structure in African-American life um, is certainly quite profound. Um, believe it or not, uh, we, there are some states that actually have um, 72% African-American males in terms of their population. And keep in mind, most of the men in jail are for nonviolent offenses, nonviolent offenses. So, and that's something I, I think we want to come back to. Um, I think you've, you, you know, you've given us, uh, highlighted some really important issues and, and there is more I'm sure to talk about with systemic racism. Um, I think for you had uh, you had uh, an interesting uh, when we were planning this you had an interesting um, question about you know from from a historical context. Assalamualaikum, Dr. Rashida. We want to understand how we got to this point, and it sounds like there is a great link between modern day racism and the history of slavery in America. I want to understand why this link is so strong and why it has impacted generations after generations. And also understand why this is different from um, other nations. Uh, we, we know that slavery existed in many parts of the world. Why has the impact been so strong in America? Oh, that's uh, such a wonderful question. And I would say, in one instance, it's because the persistence of the, the problems that we have in society are related historically to what happened to us during slavery. And I would say that 
how the slavery in um, the Americas is different from all around the world and in other societies is the brutality and the dehumanization that occurred. So essentially what you have is a system that um, engages in cultural genocide. So you have people who have no connection to their um, home country, their language, their customs, and even you know, our spiritual traditions. So um, we know his, the, historic, the historians are telling us it's about a third of Africans who were um, brought to the Americas who were enslaved were actually Muslim. So one of the things that happened even during slavery is that they were not allowed, no two people or a group of people who spoke the same language could not congregate. They could not be together. And so it's, it's about destruction, about destroying the human psyche of these Africans. And so uh, you, you, you can't speak with another African who speaks your language. Uh, you are treated less than human. And just even that whole process of, you know, the transportation, um, you know, through the dreaded middle passage where, you know, where the human beings, the Africans were, um, you know, on these slave ships and imagine, you know, they're lying in their, you know, their waist and, um, you know, people are vomiting and, you know, their dead bodies and just that whole process, just, just horrific. And I mean, even the, the bodies, they would cut the ears off of the Africans just so that they can claim, okay, you know, the, this is our slave or, or what have you. And so we now get to the slavery period. And during slavery, one of the, the, the laws um, that is so compelling is that you couldn't teach an African how to read or write. And if a white person would teach an, uh, the um, descendant of the African slave to read or write, um, it could be um, that person could actually be hung or, um, you know, face, you know, very severe punishment in society. So it's been this sort of uh, investment in destroying the psyche of the African his, um, in terms of their identity, their spiritual makeup, um, and just they didn't even allow uh, the family to exist. So a, a, a family, you know, the Africans did try to create some sort of marriage ceremony. You know, they would have a, the jumping of the broom. But that night, the white slave master could come in and rape the, the mother. And the next day, the children could be sold off. So it's just destruction, destruction. And in other forms of slavery around the world, a, a human being knew where he or she came from, they knew their family, their, their identity was still in place, and that that human being could um, eventually work their way out of slavery um, and, and then be free. And so um, with the, the chattel slavery in the U.S., you could never be free. Your children were sold off. Um, there was this level of destruction. And I would venture to say that there's no other system like this, the system of slavery in America, any place in the world. Did it's I, actually did I not, answer your question? Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. It, absolutely. Oh, and, no. and also, I mean, I think when we were talking about this, you said even after the emancipation of the slaves, there was a form of slavery that continued. And could you elaborate on that? Absolutely. So um, imagine uh, the, the wealth of the country of the United States really was built on the, 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 the sweat and the labor of the Africans. So you have this free labor that really generates the wealth in America. 
So when um, the slaves, the African slaves were emancipated, they were not given any rep reparations. We were supposed to get um, this 40 acres and a mule and that never happened. So what you had is that, you know, the people continued to continue to work on the plantations um, and they were sharecroppers. And so the system was so, um, you know, debilitating that at the end of the, the period of the crops being sold and all of that, because they would, they would get to work a, a piece of land of the former slave, slave owner, they would actually owe the slave owner. So they never could get ahead. So they literally were just in a, a, a sort of quasi state of slavery. Quasi is even being, you know, too nice. They, they, they literally were still in slavery. And then there were no laws to protect um, the Africans. Um, you know. So you have a system whereby um, people are still bound to that slavery structure. There are no reparations, there, there's no money, there's no support. Um, and then there, there have been always those white subconscious, you know, the Quakers and benefactors who helped to establish schools for um, the, the descendants. And so, um, you know, there, ha there were some supports, but generally speaking, um, those descendants of the African slaves did not receive any reparations. Um, they were left to, to, to really struggle um, and, and they struggled on for a hundred years. And so there was like a short period of reconstruction where there were some adjustments to be made. There was an effort to make um, some changes in the laws and open up the society, um, but that was a very short period. Um, and then the South began these, you know, the sort of draconian laws where, um, you know, blacks just didn't have any rights at all. They could be um, captured, murdered, lynched, you would see um, black men, they would be lynched for just even the smallest so-called offense. And they had no rights protected under the law. Um, the, white, the whites had all of the protection. So you would see maybe an African lynched, the descendant of this African slave lynched um, and burned, and they would have picnics. And whole families would come out to watch a body being burned. So oh, just, appalling. yes, it's appalling. And it sort of speaks to this idea that, you know, the African is, uh, the descendants of the Africans were not really seen as human beings. Um, and so this, um, this horror and this terror really continued on and lynching, um, you know, became a huge issue in the early part of the um, 20th century, the first couple of decades, you have, you know, thousands of, you know, black people lynched for absolutely no reason. And so economically, educationally, um, in all spheres of life, um, af after slavery, the descendants of the slaves really, really, truly suffered. And we, we don't see until maybe 1968 uh, the efforts to sort of address that. And I'm thinking as, as you're speaking, how much that contrasts with the teachings of Islam and in the times of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, when, you know, um, the injunction came to free slaves. And um, in, in the society then, active steps were taken for the integration of freed slaves into society. So it wasn't just that they were freed, they were given the means to look after themselves, marriage to freed slaves was encouraged. So you integrated um, slaves into society. And of course, you know, um, Hazrat Bilal, um, uh, is one of, of the uh, Abyssinian slaves, the freed slaves, that, you know, 
we um, as Muslims have great respect for. Um, and, and so that uh, the, the status of, of freed slaves was one that was respected. Um, I'm thinking about what you're telling us about what was going on in um, the US even after emancipation. And then of course, some, some slaves were repatriated to countries like Liberia, which didn't really have any infrastructure at all. Um, so they were shipped back from one country back to West Africa, having had no experience or connection with that country. So real hardship all around. And, and yes. And, and I certainly um, appreciate you really highlighting the beauty of Islamic teachings on how, um, you know, how slavery is dealt with and this, this idea of integrating people back into society and, and um, really trying to create that equity and justice in society. And if um, that had occurred in America, certainly we wouldn't see, you know, the descendants of these slaves still occupying the lowest strata of, stratus of society today. You, you talked about systemic racism and, and you talked about how, you know, there was a higher number of um, African-American males incarcerated. Um, and um, I wanted, your background is in education. I'm particularly interested in that because you have done a lot of work uh, thinking about um, how education or how educational systems um, uh, currently continue that systemic racism, if I'm correct. Yes, absolutely. So um, as I mentioned, I was just kind of listing out some of the um, examples of systemic racism, environmental racism, the justice courts and the prison system. Um, you also have health disparities where, um, you know, African-Americans who are subject to this sort of trauma-induced stressors associated with racism um, their bodies start to um, sort of really decompose and, and they have uh, as a public health expert that actually uses the term weathering for this way that the body, you know, just can't withstand the, the racism, you know, day to day. Um, and then, you know, the, the biggest piece that we won't have time to really go into today is the economic injustice. And I promise you, I'm getting to education reform, <laughs> but economic, <laughs> economic injustice is so critical to understand how racism uh, operates. So for example, on the average, white households have nearly 6.5 times the wealth of black households. And so we find that um, slavery had a huge impact on the accum accumulation of wealth um, post-slavery and the oppression that occurred up until like about the 1960s. And there's some research that's showing that from the 1960s on, what you see is wage inequality happening. So even if you, you have an African-American who has a, a university degree or a college degree, they're still making less than a white person who has the same degree as well. And you compound that over time, it has an impact on um, just the sort of economic equality that occurs in society. But the economic inequality drives pretty much everything. So if you don't have access to um, a job that really can give you a viable income, then you're going to live in a certain community. And when you're living in a certain impoverished community, you're not going to have access to public education in the same way 
that um, predominantly white families who live in the suburbs do. So what we have now in moving to education reform, so what we have is public, a public education system that is built on property taxes. However, if you live in a poor urban area, um, the property taxes, we don't have that, um, we don't generate the, the property taxes at the level that a middle class and an upper middle class community might generate. So even within the public education system, you have two tiers. You have the children who attend schools in suburban middle class or more upper middle class families. And then you have the children, predominantly African-American and Latino, who attend these poor schools. And the schools are segregated. So we've been, what's fascinating is that we, you know, we had a Supreme Court uh, decision in 1954 that outlawed segregated schools. And one of the basic premises is that separate schools tend to be, they are unequal, and that it sort of, it, it reinforces an inferiority complex amongst Black children. They had a very famous um, psychologist who conducted this Black doll, White doll experiment, and it was determined that Black children always preferred the white doll, and that that was um, that was used to to argue that um, you know black children do have feelings of inferiority when they're sep separate and segregated from the you know general population or the dominant group. So um, today in America, what we have is two tiers: a segregated system, whereby um, African Americans, for the most part, attend segregated schools um, in which there is um, you know, let the teachers aren't as qualified and the resources aren't there. Uh, one particular area that um, is really quite problematic is um, special education and also um, school suspension. So what you have is um, from in 1954, when segregated schools were out, outlawed, uh, you know, whites really rejected the notion of integration, and if you watch any, you know, any of the civil rights uh, movies or, excuse me, documentaries from that era, you'll see, you know, just people, you know, whites just angry and, you know, in Boston and, you know, we always think of racism as being in the South, but in Boston and in places in, in the Midwest, you know, people are just so angry. They don't want their children to attend schools with Black children. And so how can you create a system within a system to still separate African-American and brown children. And one way is through this special education system. So uh, since 1968, actually, um, it's been this persistent problem where African-Americans are overrepresented in the special education categories, particularly what we call um, intellectual disabilities, which is formerly mental retardation um, and emotional behavioral disorders. But what's really problematic is that if we look at disability categories such as blindness, deaf and blindness, multiple disabilities, um, or low vision, you know, all of those kind of categories that are more sort of scientific or, you know, you can sort of um, document the losses, the, the, the deficits in a more concrete fashion, you know, African-American children are not overrepresented in those categories but in what we call those invisible categories where there is some you know, uh, subjectivity in how these students are classified, 
we find this overrepresentation. It's it's such an interesting point. Those categories that we might label as um, you know think about as disabilities in um, in the sense of uh, you know as you said you know sight maybe hearing. Uh, physical disabilities. They're not. They're not. Uh, African American children aren't overrepresented there, but they no. are in perhaps more loosely termed special needs. I mean, in the in this country, we use the term special needs, which which kind of is a is a catch-all for you know a, a variety of um, different issues. Um, yes, is that is that what you're saying? Which is yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely quite amazing. Um, yeah. And we yeah, we use the term in, in America. We we call those in, uh, invisible disabilities. Yeah, um, and then we you know it's sort of a high incidence disability category. Um, and, and in that high incidence disability category, we have about two thirds of students are identified in in those categories, and they tend to be, um, you know, they're they're not as um, the students are not as involved as the other categories that I mentioned, like, um, you know, sensory impairments. Yeah. Um, and, and so I want to move on also to focus on this one particular category, um, emotional disturbance, where you have predominantly African-American males, boys are placed in this category. And so um, as that's happening, we also have African-American boys who are um, expelled or suspended from school um, at least three times higher than all of the other, um, you know, racial groups as well. And so we have this notion that school almost has become uh, a prison pipeline. So we, we segregate the boys um, who we label with this emotional disturbance category. And might I add, our female population in America is predominantly female, white, and middle class. And they're teaching these boys who are predominantly from, you know, single parent, many of them are from single parent homes, from poor families. Um, and so they're, they're, they're very vulnerable and at risk. And so these teachers don't really understand the challenges that these boys are faced with. So they're vulnerable. So they get this classification. They're expelled from school quite a bit, uh, three times more than other children. And so now they're becoming at risk to now move into the prison system, which we know that African-American males are overrepresented in the prison system. So this is how systemic racism really works. It's, it's such a well-oiled machine that it just grinds on and on and on and on again. And so it's, it's, it's quite problematic. So I wanted to just share with you this scenario. Um, for example, so, so, so we have a low-income child who is African-American and that child struggles academically in this poorly resourced district. Um, and, and the child hasn't had access to preschool services. Um, and so um, they're, they're actually in a school with a high percentage of first and second year teachers. So what you need for um, these children who may be from single parent homes or vulnerable types of communities, they really need the, the best teachers, the most experienced teachers, but they typically get um, the most inexperienced teachers. And so, um, you know, our children in these systems really, um, you know, really struggle, you know, academically. And so we have this um, idea of the achievement gap. So also not only are children you know, in these special ed categories, but also there's a, a gap between the achievement of African-American and brown children and those of um, white children as well. 
so it's kind of stacked, isn't it? The, the odds are completely stacked up uh, from the get-go. A question that I think other people might have is, for people looking out uh, to America, might think, okay, well, there are other groups that are also um, not as privileged, and um, or they uh, they are in poverty, and maybe um, groups like the uh, Latino community, uh, they're living in poverty many places. How are those groups different? I mean, how are they facing racism different than African Americans? Well, yeah. You say. Well, yeah, it's it's a great question. They, um, in general, the Latino community is. Um, they are um, experiencing, experiencing some of the same challenges that we have, African-Americans have, but they're slightly a little bit better off in terms of when we look at statistics and numbers. And uh, one of the things that I would really stress here is that Latino communities have a culture. They have a family structure. Um, and that's that cult for African-Americans, that cultural genocide really has sort of broken down the family structure. And it took centuries for that to happen. But today we are seeing families really in distress. You know, now we have the pandemic and you know, just a lot of economic crisis going on. And you have a lot of female heads of households. And so we, we have about two thirds of African-American children are born out of wedlock. And we don't have, we don't see that disproportionality in terms of Latino families. So they still have their language, their customs, and family still means a lot to, to them. And so you don't see that destruction because remember the Latinos were not, the Latino community, they weren't enslaved like the Africans. So they didn't um, experience cultural genocide. And so that's sort of the beauty of culture that it can be a way to uplift, you know, a group of people. It's, it's something that people can um, value and it sort of supports and helps them. Now we know in Islam that, you know, there's Islamic culture is the culture, but if we're practicing our culture and it doesn't contradict or, or go against the Islamic, um, the Islamic teachings, we certainly can practice our culture and a lot created us, um, you know, and then we were dispersed. Um, and then he certainly recognizes that these different cultures, but back to your um, question, um, is I, I, would, I would say that, you know, key to understanding this is that the difference between Latino communities and African-American communities is the fact that they do have a culture and that their family structure is still um, a lot stronger in terms of how they, you know, the structure of it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I feel like I, I, this sort of ties with something that I was reading. It was from the keynote address of um, the worldwide head of the MD Muslim community that he gave on in, in the European Parliament in Brussels. And, and just to note, I mean, he, um, I'll just read a little bit about this. He said, I should also mention that there are multiple aspects of peace and security, as every individual facet is important in its own right. At the same time, the way each aspect interlinks is also extremely important. For example, the basing, basic building block for peace in society is tranquility and harmony within the family home. The situation within a home is not limited, but has a knock-on effect on the peace of the local area, which in turn affects the peace of the wider town or city. If there is disturbance in the home, it will negatively affect the local area, and that will affect 
the town or city in the same way the state of the town or city affects the peace of the entire country and ultimately the state of the nation affects the peace and harmony of the region or the entire world. So it, it really feels like the impact of, a, of these issues um, has, has an impact on the family, the core family unit, and that is it, it's it, it, it is disseminating both ways, right? It, it, the, the, it's, it's sort of going back in history of what are those things contributing to the broken families now and then what those broken families now is actually going forward and causing more problems going forward for these communities. Yes, absolutely, uh, Farhad. I, you know, I really appreciate you um, sharing those, the wise words of Pazor, may Allah strengthen his hand. And it, it so beautifully, you know, really lays out how important the family unit is. And um, we, for African-American communities, the family unit really needs to be addressed. And um, the way to do that, obviously, is through Islam, because Islam does stress marriage. Um, and so, um, you know, that's, that's certainly the steps that we need to take. And, you know, the, the question would be, how do we, um, you know, bring these communities into Islam? We know that the, um, Islam is growing very fast amongst the Latino community, and they're coming with their culture and their food that doesn't uh, sort of disconnect from Islam. But, you know, we're allowed to enjoy our culture as long as it doesn't um, take away from our practice as Muslims. And so we want... Um, you know, African-Americans to embrace Islam, to come to Islam, because it's through Islam and the wise teachings of Allah and through, um, you know, how we, we understand the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and how we, for us as Ahmadis, we've accepted the promised Messiah, alayhi salam. Um, and, and so, you know, I just want to quote his, you know, message where he says, Allah desires to make all of mankind as if they were one person. Um, this could be called a democratic singularity, but under this concept, the diversity of mankind could be considered as one individual. So the purpose of religion is also that the human race um, can be united in the form of beads of a tasbi or rosary through one thread. And so it's such a beautiful message of, um, you know, we're all humankind and that, you know, if we can move to Allah, um, and we could uh, certainly, for African-Americans, it could certainly address a, a lot of the challenges that we face. And I think uh, everything you've spoken about here, you've spoken about the historical context. And, and in Islam, we have a historical precedence of how slavery was dealt with and eradicated um, and systems put in place um, to uh, prevent slavery uh, in the future. Um, we also have, I think, in Islam, um, means to address some of the issues that you have raised under the banner of justice and tolerance. Because I'm thinking all the time of what you've spoken about is injustice, isn't it? The, the systems yes. that are in place are based on injustice and intolerance. Um, you know, the, no, the, the idea that, that one race is superior to another um, the idea that one peoples can be treated in a particular way and others can uh, others don't have to be or others are you know um, placed on a pedestal um, the idea that um, you can eat while your neighbor is starving um, 
And it is, it comes back to justice, doesn't it? I, I think a, a lot of what you're saying and, you know, um, also I think the other interesting thing, I was thinking about how much um, Hazur, um, Hazur Khalifa al-Masih, the fifth has spoken about the point that Farad raised, which was peace in the home. And that, that if you get your building blocks right, and you started off talking about a building, didn't you, when, when you started this, <laughs> yes. that those building blocks are so key. They, they're key, the building blocks in the family, in the home, having that structure then translates to the building blocks in education, which again, in, in turn, goes on to those other things that we value, like you know, jobs and security. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there's, there's been this sort of myth that's been perpetrated that, uh, you know, uh, you know, somehow uh, a single mother, you know, a single black woman can do it all. And it, it really, it's very challenging and almost impossible, to be frank, if there is not a strong support system. In some instances, you know, a mother um, may, you know, sadly lose her husband to maybe disease or the, the, the husband would die or, um, you know, there may be divorce, but there is a family unit, an extended family around that mother and the children that can support the family and maybe their uncles or, you know, or, you know, cousins or other family members that can kind of step up um, into this father role. But the, in the family structure for many African-Americans, um, in some instances, maybe the uncles or the big brothers might be even incarcerated, or that the role models that they see may not, um, you know, necessarily be problematic. And, and obviously, you know, there are exceptions to this rule, and, and there are wonderful African American families in existence. I want to make that disclaimer. I'm not trying to sure, paint sure. this, you know, bleak picture that you know everything is is 100% terrible with our communities, but. I'm looking at the big picture. Like what, if we look statistically at the numbers, what do we see? Yes, there are obviously exceptions to all of this, um, but Islam is, is the one place that, um, you know, the teachings of Islam so beautiful as you've outlined, um, you talked about how even just with slavery, there are um, ways that, you know, Islam addresses how slaves should be um, treated, you know, after, you know, slavery, and that never occurred in America. Um, Islam places a great emphasis on the family as well. Um, and so the, the destruction of the family, for, it took uh, centuries for that to happen. Um, right up until like the 1960s, we did have African-Americans did have families intact. And so this is a, you know, relatively new phenomena that, you know, most of our families uh, are not intact and that most children or um, don't necessarily see their father. Um, and then part of that is that fathers um, can't necessarily find the employment that they need, or, um, you know, there's a whole host of complex uh, reasons. But, um, you know, we started off talking about this, you know, um, racism and the sort of ways that people are categorized, um, the, the, the um, artificial categories that, uh, create this unjust society. Um, and so I advocate that, you know, we should really try to study more these, um, the ways that these structures operate. And so I'm always reminded of um, verse 20, um, 
chapter 20, verse 115, where Allah says, Oh Lord, increase me in knowledge. And I would say that that's a challenge that I'm presenting to the listeners that we really have to study even more um, about these structures. And so that um, we can really be strong advocates for transform, uh, uh, transforming society. Um, Islam is the only way that we can really transform society uh, in terms of these deeply embedded structures that oppress people. And then I want to also say that, you know, I did mention and, and talk about this, uh, the social construct of race, but I'm not in any way denying the existence of culture. And certainly in the Holy Quran, uh, chapter 30, verse 22, Allah says, and among his signs is the creation of heavens and the earth and the diversity of your tongues and colors. And in that surely are signs for those who possess knowledge. Um, o mankind, chapter 49, uh, four, verse 14, O mankind, we have created you from a male and a female, and we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes that you may recognize one another. Verily the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is most righteous among you. Surely Allah is all knowing and all aware. Um, and so um, we have diversity and we can respect diversity, but we need the social justice. We, we really need the social justice in society. And the theme of justice is something that um, Hazur has constantly spoken about. Um, hasn't he forwarded these various uh, addresses to uh, parliamentarians? He's spoken at the U.S. Um, uh, uh, houses um, of representatives. He's spoken to European leaders. You know, he this note, this concept of justice, is so important in today's society, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of the things I do want to ask you, if if I might, um, uh, you you mentioned, of course, not um, uh, all African uh, American families are disjointed. Um, or uh, broken up. And there is quite a strong tradition of Christianity uh, in the South, if I understand rightly. And I wondered what your thoughts about that were. Well, actually, I'm not, yeah, it's not just in the South, but, you know, Christianity really is the sort of, um, it's very central to the African-American experience. Um, the African experience in America, um, as we talked about earlier, how, um, you know, it was very important that the Africans be stripped of their um, religious identity. And in its place during slavery, um, this sort of Christianity specifically devised for slaves, believe it or not, was um, sort of taught to the slaves. Um, Christianity and devised it, for slaves. Yes, absolutely. They, they had the sort of ways that they, and they had a, a certain Bible just for the slaves in which they sort of, sort of reinforces um, this notion that they were inferior. But the beauty of it is that the, the slaves did find a way to take the, the religion that they were using to sort of oppress them. And, and it, it was uplifting to them. I mean, they, you know, they developed these songs and they, they found ways to sort of praise and, and worship Allah in the best way that they could, given that they were given this so-called slave religion. But the, the challenge is, is that 
in Christianity today, not the pure Christianity or the Christianity of, you know, Prophet Isa, but the Christianity of today, which really, you know, focuses on this, um, the vision of the creator, um, also sort of supports racial categories. So if you believe that your creator is divided, then you can certainly uh, believe that as human beings, we're divided and we belong to these different categories. And the, the, the Christianity is really a, another tool of oppression. And that would be a whole another conversation for scholars, religious scholars to address that. But for African-Americans, the version of Christianity that African-Americans are so attached to has actually been a tool of oppression. So you find that, you know, we don't have that sort of, you know, within the African-American church, you don't have that tradition of really sort of studying different religions or even having this sort of interfaith dialogue. And I, I notice often we have, um, you know, interfaith dialogue, interfaith dialogue more with white churches than we do with African-Americans. Um, my cousin, first cousin, uh, he's, you know, very, he's a prominent person in his church. And I asked him one day, I said, do you all ever, ever have interfaith dialogue, you know, with other, you know, religious groups? And it was this long uh, silence. And he said, no. And, you know, and uh, I'm not saying that they're, they're, that doesn't occur, but generally speaking, um, African-Americans are very locked into um, Christianity and it's, it's, it's a challenge to sort of um, get them to think uh, and look at other religions because of this sort of connection with Christianity and uh, as a, even sort of a way to kind of, they felt like that was their sal salvation. Um, you look at slavery, post-slavery, the civil rights movement, the church was so central. Yes, to, Martin Luther um, King. Yes, absolutely. comes to mind immediately, yes. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I was, you know, I was born, um, you know, into Islam, but I just remember listening to Dr. Martin Luther King's speeches, and, you know, I just found them so fascinating because I wasn't used to that, um, his um, style of, you know, oratory, yes. but, you know, certainly he, you know, was you know, probably one of the best orators of the 20th century, but um, it's, it's certainly a challenge. You know, African-Americans on one hand, African-Americans are attracted to Islam. We do have a group that is attractive, but we also have many of the upper middle-class, wealthy African-Americans who really, really want to hold on to this form of Christianity in which the creator is divided. You know, you, you have the three in one. Yes. Um, and then yes. it also sort of reinforces this sort of categories of, of humankind being divided. That is absolutely fascinating. And I think, you know, I, I've got a whole load more questions I could ask you, but I think that is perhaps for another day. And I think that the, you know, the, the issues you've raised about the role of faith, particularly Christianity in all of this is fascinating. Um, I, I want to thank you so much for uh, being with us on today's podcast. And I think it's been enormously educative. Um, and I do hope that our listeners um, will be able to benefit from uh, the enormous insights that you have given us. So I really want to thank you, uh, Dr. Rashid Ahmed, for this. And I really appreciate you giving us this time. Jazakallah, um, alhamdulillah. I really, you know, I, I really appreciate the invitation. It's, it's, so, it's been so interesting. Um, you know, just having this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Jazakallah. You've been listening to the Review of Religions. 
To find out more about us, please do go to our website, reviewreligions.org, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at reviewreligions. Jazakallah and thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.